Well, Sharon, where are we going to be next week? We are going to be in the windy city of Chicago at AANA Congress 2022. Yeah, we wanted to let all our listeners know who are possibly going to be there that we are actually going to be having a meet and greet for them to come by and chat with us and maybe tell us some ideas, things that they like. If you don't like us, just don't come by, right? That's right. Yeah, and we're going to be doing that Sunday, August 14th when the exhibit hall opens at 4.15. And where are we going to be meeting at, Sharon? We are going to be in the AANA Connection space, so come by and see us. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, hello, Miss Sharon Pierce. How are you today? Uh, the question is, how are you after getting back from Alaska? Have you, have you acclimated? Uh, you know what? I slept till about 1145 Eastern time today, which uh, is totally unheard of. I went to bed around 132 o'clock last night. So uh, yeah, I'm still acclimating four hours behind. Let's see, traveled 3,500 miles yesterday. And let's see, what about nine hours flying? So it's been fun. And then come home and I've got to move my oldest daughter back to college. So we packed everything back up that we moved three weeks ago home. Everything's going back and then some because she's moving into another place and they need all this kind of furniture. So we're clearing out our basement. Everything's going to be gone. It'll be great. And then tomorrow morning I get to go get up and drive over and move her in. So it's wonderful. Oh, fun. And then next week we leave for Chicago. Yeah, I got four days of work. I've been gone for over two weeks, so I got four days in the office, and then one, two, three, four, five days out. It, it's, I'm telling you, it's great. It's great to be <laughs> Jeremy Stanley. Oh, me. So, well, Sharon, I think we have a wonderful show lined up here today, and, and I'm going to kind of let you do the introduction today, because this uh, this 
particular person might be doing something that not many people have done. Absolutely. Uh, not many people, maybe two. And <laughs> if uh, she's successful, she will be the first in the United States. So That's awesome. Um, yeah, I had the pleasure. I, well, let me back up. I got an email from our next guest. Wound up, we connected. I interviewed her for my website, uh, Facebook page, Influential Nurses, and she was just so amazing that I felt like we needed to get her on the podcast. So I uh, strong-armed you into taping her today so we could go ahead and get this out to our listeners. So without further ado, I want to introduce Caitlin Sapita. I said that right, like centipede. Yes, <laughs> yes. And um, Caitlin is a nurse, and she's running from for sheriff of her hometown. So, Caitlin, I'll just go ahead and punt to you, and you tell us how you got here, a little bit about your background, and we'll start shooting questions at you. Well, thank you, Jeremy. Shake. Thank you, Sharon. Appreciate you having me here on the podcast today. Uh, I'm Caitlin Sapita. I am running for Hampshire County Sheriff in Massachusetts. Hampshire County encompasses 20 towns in kind of the middle western part of the state. I have been a nurse for almost 12 years and a correctional nurse for over 10, nearly 10 of those, almost my entire correctional experience inside of the facility that I'm running to be sheriff for. Um, I got into corrections kind of by happenstance. Nursing is a second career for me. I did other things before this and came to nursing in my 30s and quickly got into correctional nursing. I wanted to serve an underserved community that I thought deserved really, really great nursing care, but who often had been overlooked by the mainstream. Corrections, I thought, was a very interesting way to do that. And I set foot in the door and I have never looked back. It's a fantastic big career for me. Um, every day is new in the correctional facility that I work in. It's a jail and house of corrections. So they're pretrial detainees, pretrial um, justice involved individuals and short term sentences. So two and a half years or less. So in some cases, we have people really, really short term for days or weeks. And then other people we have for years at a time. So we see acute care. We see long-term care. We see chronic care. Wow. Uh, it's a little bit of everything. I like to say in correctional nursing, we are jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, Got to know a little bit about it all. And you don't have to know how to put it all together with uh, spit and duct tape. Because we are a public entity funded entirely by taxpayer dollars. So we have to be very, very cognizant of our bottom line and who it is our stakeholders are. And one of those stakeholders of which there are many are the constituents and the taxpayers that fund us through the legislature. So we have to be very cognizant of that. And how did I come to run for this? The current administration is one that I've served under for the first five years of his administration. I served for the previous sheriff for the first five years of my career. And I thought that there could be more that we do. I thought that we could serve the individuals in our care better than we are. I thought that we could be more fiscally responsible than we are. And I could thought that we could come to corrections from a different viewpoint. I think a lot of people have the misconception that corrections is custodial and warehousing individuals and, you know, give them a bologna sandwich, lock them up and throw away the key. Old way of thinking of corrections. That's not how we do it. Rehabilitation is the focus. And who better than to helm an agency than someone who has rehabilitation and care and empathy as their core and their background. 
I think that the way that corrections is moving and the individual that we're seeing in corrections who is by and large affected by substance use and mental health disorders, that's our focus and that's the evolution of corrections and that's the individual that we're seeing in corrections and who better to deal with those issues than someone whose life work is that. Wow. Caitlin, this is interesting to me. I mean, you said a mouthful there, but, you know, as I'm, I'm sitting here listening to you talk and, um, you know, a couple of the takeaways that I, I took right then was, yeah, I, I still think about corrections in that way. You know, hey, this is warehousing, you know, these are the same repeat offenders and they're going to come back in and, and they'll go right back out. But you, you also brought up some great points that, you know, a lot of the folks that you see have drug issues and drug problems. And if you can rehab those, those individuals, then you can make them productive members of society again, which is, which is an interesting take. And to be honest, you know, I don't deal with that every day. So, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't either. So this is a point that, you know, I think is, is very well taken. The other thing that I thought was interesting is, you know, being a nurse and wanting to go into corrections. I mean, you know, it almost sounds like maybe you've got a little bit of adrenaline junkie in you. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe. Um, I like a challenge. There you go. Okay. I, like a, right. I like a challenge. Okay. I'm a right. lifelong student, a lifelong learner, and this job keeps me on my toes. Gotcha. I, I in corrections, the staff becomes oftentimes institutionalized in the same manner that the individuals in our care do. Mm. Oh my God, what a, say that one more time. That's a big thought. (laughs) They, in corrections, the individuals in our care, as well as the staff are married to a schedule, a really, really tight schedule in a lot of ways, but that ensures the safety of the facility and the safety of those in our care. But every single day is Groundhog Day when you're talking about the schedule. So you have to be prepared for that. On top of that, because you're dealing with a population who has substance use issues, mental health issues, trauma-related issues, they're often very um, volatile and impulsive. Mm. So within that regimented schedule that we all live in 40 plus hours a week, you can have a monkey wrench thrown in every day. So you never know what you're walking into. Right which is why the job keeps you on your toes. You know, the basic schedule of my day is the same. You know, I walk in, get report, get myself settled. We start med pass, we do intakes, we end with a med pass and we end with report at the end of the night, generally speaking. Yeah. At any point in time in that, I could be having to send somebody to the hospital because they have an appendectomy uh, or because they have an appendicitis and they need an appendectomy emergently. Mm -hmm. I have somebody with a dental infection. I have a fight where I have a stabbing. I have respiratory distress. I have somebody who's having a heart attack. I have somebody who is in the acute throes of alcohol detox and I need to manage them and I'm monitoring their CEWA. I can have all of that in one shift. (laughs) You have no idea what's coming at you. So absolutely, it makes those triage skills work on overdrive. And And it makes those assessment skills work on overdrive. So somebody who's looking for kind of a little bit of everything Corrections is kind of a fun place to be. You have to understand that doing that, you are never going to be walking into the facility that has the best of anything. Mm. You are never going to have the very best equipment. You are never going to have the very best technology, at least not at your fingertips. I have a hospital five minutes down the road, but in my office, like I don't. Um, So you have to understand that. So there is a ton of procedural things that you learn that are just like, you know, here's what I do with the 
with the tools at my disposal sort of thing. You learn some really great um, tips and tricks from nurses who've been in it before. I was fortunate enough when I got into my career 10 years ago, I was partnered with a male nurse who is 25 years my senior, and he is absolutely the yin to my yang. He retired about a year and a half ago, and he is a second dad to me. He was an absolute mentor to me. He had been a bedside nurse for 25 years before that. He's been a nurse longer than I've been alive. And I was fortunate enough to have him take me under his wing. And I learned an incredible amount. And I've tried to go on in my career and pass a lot of that knowledge and that experience onto new nurses that I've worked with over the years, too. And, and Caitlin, I imagine there are limited financial resources that are put towards correctional facilities as well. So talk a little bit about that. That's always interesting to me um, because, like you said, you're not going to have the best equipment. You're not going to have the best environment there, obviously. Um, so you're having to make decisions about what gets done and how it gets done as well. So in Massachusetts, the budgets for the Houses of Correction, which is where I work, are determined annually by the state legislature. So our budgets are funded that way. And there's a multitude of factors that come into determining that budget. That has to do with incarcerated individual population, age of the building, programs happening, staff size, size and population of the county that you're serving, A, B, C, D, more, all of that kind of thing. Um, and then that allocation goes to the sheriff and the sheriff can essentially then decide how it is they choose to spend that money. In our county, in Hampshire County, the annual budget is about $16 million, 16.1. The vast majority of that over 14 million goes to payroll. Now, what are you getting with that payroll? That's security staff, medical staff, treatment staff, and all of your ancillary um, education and administrative staff. Now, what are you getting out of your medical staff when you do that? You're getting uh, the facility physician, you're getting your nursing staff in not Hampshire County, but in other facilities, you know, you get MAs and med passers and CNAs and whatever it is that your facility determines is appropriate. Um, and then we pay as a state facility, we're self-pay. So I have that person who has an appendicitis and needs to go to the hospital for an appendectomy. The state pays for that. That comes out of the facility's operating budget. Do we have everything that we absolutely want all of the time? No, but there's no state agency that does. Can everybody get everything that they need? Absolutely. I think there's a misnomer across the country that the health care provided to incarcerated individuals is second rate. It's not. 1976 Supreme Court case Estelle v. Gamble determined that adequate and appropriate and um, comparable health care to the general public was required by the Supreme Court to be offered and um, met by correctional facilities to individuals who are incarcerated. They are the only class of people in the United States who are constitutionally required to be provided health care at the same level as everybody else in the world. So for anybody out there who thinks that we're just, you know, throwing away a key and putting somebody in a cell and we're never dealing with them again, that's actually illegal to do. So I can't see somebody and know that they need, you know, an appendectomy and not send them because, well, you're an inmate. I don't care. Right. That's not how that works. They get everything that you and I get. They need an eye appointment. We schedule in the next eye appointment. They need to go see a dermatologist because they have a mole that's suspicious. They get the next dermatology appointment. 
As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. So, Caitlin, we have just learned a lot about what correctional nursing entails. Let's transition a little bit to your run for office. Had you ever run for anything before? No, I've never run for anything before. This is the first time I've run for anything. When I was in um, tail end of graduate school and into the first job I had out of graduate school, which was different than nursing, not what I do now, um, I served as an appointed member of the Conservation Commission in the town that I lived in at the time for a three-year term. But that was it. I've never run for anything. Tell us your thought processes. Um, I certainly believe that nurses are qualified to run for office. Obviously, I've built uh, a lot of my latter career on that premise, and I too have run for office. But tell me your thoughts about what qualities that nurses have that make them great to run for public office. Nurses are educators. Nurses are teachers. Nurses are advocates. These are things that nurses do every day, and this is what a lot of public officials, I think, are lacking that are intrinsically part of nurses. This is, I think, part of what is in every nurse that calls them to nursing in the first place and is enhanced by the education and experiences that we get as nurses. And I think running for a public office really just kind of taps into even more deeply those pieces of nursing. You're communicating every day with your patients, your colleagues, other medical care providers, the families about what it is that's going on with them, how it is we're making them better, how it is we're trying to keep them well. You're doing the same thing in public office. I'm talking to constituents every day, explaining very complex issues that have to do with the running of a correctional facility, the fiscal management of correctional facility, and I'm making that understandable to my constituents. Those constituents are part of my patiency. What am I trying to do with this race is expand on that definition of patient from a singular person to the entity of the jail and house of correction that I'm looking to run. So now that entire institution becomes my patient. So I now begin advocating for it as a whole rather than the individual patients within it. What does my facility need? Does it need more resources from the legislature? Well, I'm out there advocating for it. Do my staff need more resources from their community in terms of recruitment and other people coming in mental health and support wellness for the staff? So I'm advocating for that. What do the individuals in my care need? They need more access to outside providers upon release. They need opportunities for job access, for entrepreneurial partnerships. Well, I'm advocating for that to the community. It's the advocacy work that nurses do every day on a bigger scale. We all know how to do it. It's just expanding it. Now, there are how many people in the race? Three total. The incumbent and two challengers who were both former employees of his. 
Okay. How is that relationship between you and the incumbent that you currently work for? <laughs> we just It's interesting. We had our first candidate forum um, for anybody who's listening to this now. We're taping this on a Saturday. So we had our first uh, candidate forum two days ago on a Thursday. With It was the first time all three of us were in the same room with one another. It, it was a forum. I mean, we're civil to one another. But there were certainly um, issues that the two challengers had with the incumbent about choices that he made that we would have made differently had we been in the chair. And it's interesting having him have to answer questions against two people who understand the inner workings of a facility and who had previously been managed by him. It got interesting. When the current sheriff ran for an open seat six years ago, he had two challengers then as well, neither of whom had any significant correctional experience and certainly none in the facility that he's running now. So it was a different beast for him. He really had the only insider knowledge and him the most experience. Now he's running against people who have both. Now there are whoever wins this primary takes all. You're in a, a, a heavily democratic area. Yeah. So Hampshire County, yeah, Hampshire County is very, very democratic, uh, three to one Democrat Republican. This is a contested Democratic primary. So there's three of us who are running for the Democratic primary nomination that happens on September 6th. For all intents and purposes, it will be winner take all. There is no one from an oppositional party running. So whomever is the Democratic nominee from the primary election will be the only name on the general election ballot November 8th. So you've just got to win by one or has it got to be a majority? I just got to win by one. <laughs> one by. Just by one. How many people? That's it. How many t- people voted in the last election, Caitlin? Just, uh, the last, in Massachusetts, we're the only state that has a six-year term for its sheriff. So six years ago in 2016, which was a presidential election year, there was a little over 12,000 people total that voted in the primary. Wow. Wow. It's not that many. Well, and, you know, usually it isn't. I mean, usually it's... uh, It's it's not. And this is a midterm year as well. So we're expecting less voter turnout. But I will say that as we're getting closer to this, this is becoming one of the hotter races around. Interesting. It's in the state of Massachusetts, five of our six big statewide seats are also up for election. We're electing a new governor, lieutenant governor, AG, secretary of state is also being contested as well as uh, auditor. And then kind of we're a very down ballot race, but sheriff is kind of a big deal considering how many towns it encompasses in this part of the state. It's a pretty big swath of the state and it matters to a lot of people. And it's starting to get a little bit more interesting. They're starting to get to be a little bit more heat underneath it. Well, it always surprises me that people don't vote in primaries, but that's where the race really is. Um, it really is. If you only vote in the general election, you're voting for the person that somebody else chose for you. Exactly. The primaries are so important because this is where you have so many options about how you'd like to use your voice. When you Once you get to the general election, we've really kind of um, coalesced that down into something much, much smaller. And there's certainly less choice. Again, yes, it's somebody that everybody else has chosen. And your voice matters a whole lot in the primary. And then when we talk about elections as well, local elections are where you can start to make really, really big differences. This is a local election that affects a small portion of a small state. So this is going to be a really important election for a lot of people locally and make a big local difference. So it's important to voters in this county to use that voice and use it wisely come the primary on September 6th. 
All right, so so Caitlin, I've got numerous questions running through my head. Okay, so and, and <laughs> there's I a lot usually do. There's there, there's yeah. a lot going on. Yeah. So and some of this is going to be a little devil's advocate here. I'm just going to say I'm going to throw it out there. Sure. So uh, and I'm sure you've heard it all. But first, you know, a lot of our listeners are probably sitting here going, "All right, Caitlin, you're you're a nurse by background here." Do you have any law enforcement experience? If you're going to be sheriff, um, you know, and I'm sure you've been asked this, do, and I don't know the answer to this. Do you have any law enforcement outside of nursing in the correctional facility? No, I have none. Okay. All right. Nope. So then what makes you think that you would make a good sheriff without that law enforcement uh, you know, background? And I think that's going to be the key. I'm just sitting here looking. If I'm if I'm someone out there, and I am going to vote in this election, to me, that is going to be the key that you're going to have to answer for me. Because I'm going to go, gosh, Caitlin, you've never, you know, you you don't carry a gun. I'm assuming, you know, you you you've never shot anybody. You never did. You put anybody in handcuffs? I mean, you know, these are the things that people probably think. So um, I think this is maybe where our regional differences come into play. So in the state of Massachusetts, a sheriff's primary responsibility is the safe and early running of the correctional facility in that county. We do not patrol. We do not arrest. We are not required to carry guns, though some people do. Our transportation department will. Our civil process department will. But the primary concern is just running the facility and kind of the ancillary pieces of the facility. So in Hampshire County, we have the main jail and house of corrections, so pretrial and sentenced. There's also a civil process division. Those are deputies who serve legal paperwork. So they serve divorce decrees. They serve eviction notices, things like that. We also have a community corrections arm, which is so people finish their sentence and get out on parole or probation, and they have stipulations to those. Some of those stipulations may be regular but random drug testing, urine testing. They come to a community corrections facility and they do that. That's run by the sheriff's office. They come and they're required to do alcohol or drug classes or attend AA or NA classes. A lot of those happen at a community corrections facility, and that's managed by the sheriff's department. So we are not in patrol cars driving around arresting people, having guns and holsters. That's not what we do in Massachusetts. You're not Andy Griffith, right? We are not. Not, okay. Nope. Right. Not, you know, not Andy and Barney were right up so, the road here from where I'm located. So, so. Not, so not having law enforcement experience is not um, something that's going to preclude me from running for this and not something that quite honestly, yes, I got some of these questions at kind of the beginning when I announced the campaign back in February. Mm -hmm. But since then, we are in a heavily liberal, heavily democratic and progressive county in this state. People would dislike it more if I were super duper law enforcement. Gotcha. That's not going to play super well up here. Well, and, and that's that's the point that, that I was really trying to make with all this. For our listeners out there that are mainly nurses and nurse anesthetists and so forth, you are taking a completely different view on running for mm-hmm. office. You're, you're taking this thing and saying, you know what, the traditional way of running for office, the traditional reasonings for running for office don't apply to Caitlin. Caitlin is taking a different view. You know, I, mm-hmm. I've seen the inner workings and here's what I think I can do better. And I think that's the point that we mm-hmm. really need to try to get across here is that the way you're going about this, might there might be other nurses out there listening to this 
And there might be, and I can, I'm sure that if there are other correctional nurses listening to this or other nurses that work with the substance use disorder community, particularly in the Northeast and in the Western part of the state, the Midwest is still kind of a little bit different and the South is a little bit different than, you know, what we see in terms of the opioid crisis up here in the Northeast where we are ground zero. Mm -hmm. In the last five or six years, we have seen a 180 degree shift. When I first started in corrections 10 years ago, I don't know, once a week, maybe I'd see somebody who's coming in detoxing off of opiates, but it was primarily alcohol or it was violent offenders. It wasn't that big of a deal. Five or six years ago, it really started to shift. Heroin got really, really bad. And then we really started fentanyl two or three years ago, three years ago, maybe before COVID. Um, And it's almost every person I see. I do upwards of, you know, 15, 20 new intakes a week, something like that. Nearly all of them are being monitored for opiate detox. It is everyone in the state of Massachusetts. Every drug that you can imagine is cut with fentanyl. There is largely no heroin even anymore. It's all fentanyl. Cocaine's cut with fentanyl. Fentanyl's being pressed into look like regular prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs, we see it all. It's everywhere. It's the only thing we see. So when we're talking about individuals who are experiencing incarceration, earlier this year, the state of Massachusetts um, published what's called the Correctional Funding Report. There was a special commission convened several years ago that coalesced all of the material provided by all of the 14 sheriff's departments in this county, as well as the Department of Corrections, and looked at kind of trends across corrections. And compiled a big list and a big you know report so in my county in hampshire county approximately 80 percent of the individuals who come into my facility have a diagnosed substance use disorder that's massive and i would say that that's lowballing it quite honestly it's everybody and then on top of that 50 percent of the individuals walking in the door have a diagnosed severe mental illness as well when you ask the individuals themselves it's closer to 70 percent but there's an additional 20% there that don't actually meet clinical criteria for a diagnosis, but who are still experiencing symptoms and thereby self-medicate. Wow. So we have co-occurring disorders in more than 50% of our population. Who better to man and helm a facility than a nurse when what you're dealing with are nursing issues? Mm-hmm. These are not law enforcement issues. These people are sick yeah. and they need help. Who better than someone who understands this at the very most basic level? Sharon, oh my did you, God, did I you want to vote for you now. <laughs> I, I know, did, did you realize I think, this? I, I mean, think what all nurses need to understand is that there is a viewpoint that they have as nurses, which is important and unique, and they need to leverage that to their advantage to make change. You need to understand that your perspective is important and unique, and you need to be loud about voicing that. There's nothing wrong with being loud. It's fine. You be loud in a respectful way and you get people to follow you. You get people to follow the bandwagon and get on it and start to make change. I haven't been doing this in a bubble. I've been doing this with people. This has been years in the planning doing this. I've spent 10 years in corrections earning the trust of the individuals that I work with, the individuals that I serve and care for, and the community that I assist. Spent a lot of time doing that. People know that I stand behind my word and that I'm really trying here. Nurses do that all the time. Nurses have such a unique kind of opportunity with their patients to create that really fast trust. You get somebody to buy into you and trust you to help them real fast. You need to leverage that in your community when you're running for uh, election, running for a campaign. 
you are really clear and concise about what you're talking with and you get people to trust you, you get people to want to know more and to want to follow you more. Nurses do this. It's just thinking bigger. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855 855- 304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. So speaking of following you more, tell us, have you got a website? Tell us a few of those things. I do. I have a website. It's www.sepedaforsheriff.com. That's S-E-P as in Peter, E-D as in David, A for sheriff.com. I'm also on Facebook, Sapita for Sheriff or Caitlin Sapita for Hampshire County Sheriff. You can type that into. I'm on Instagram, Caitlin Sapita for Sheriff. You can find me all over the places. We are in the home stretch of our primary campaign season here. If you live in Massachusetts in Hampshire County, I have 20 some odd appearances the next 30 days. We have uh, two more live candidate forums coming this Tuesday and then another on the 25th. The first one that we did two days ago is also available to watch on YouTube. If you go to either my Facebook, my Instagram or my website and you go to either the news section or just the last couple of um, entries on my Facebook, there's a link to that on YouTube, but you can also go to YouTube and type in East Hampton Hampshire Sheriff Forum, and it should come up. It's two hours long. I know not a lot of people are going to commit to it, but it's very interesting. We talk about everything. We talk about fiscal management. We talk about COVID response. We talk about substance use. We talk about mental health. There's a lot of things that I think a lot of nurses would find interesting and helpful in thinking about their work on a bigger scale and how it affects a larger group and a larger population of people. What's the campaign budget? kind of for a sheriff's race in in your county? Six years ago, when this was an open seat and the previous sheriff was retiring, there was a big budget that went to the current incumbent. He raised something like $80,000 and spent a big chunk of that. The two competitors raised nothing near that. Six years ago, he also had a Republican challenger in the general election who raised something like $25,000. We are nowhere near that this time. The current incumbent has placed $15,000 of his own money into his coffers to start to pay for things and has raised another, I don't know, approximately that much, $15,000, $20,000, something like that, over the last several years up until now. The other challenger of the race has put in nearly $18,000 of her own money and then raised another two from the general population. I have a husband and two kids and work a full-time job, as do my husband, and we do not have that kind of money to spare. My family and my campaign donated, well, my family and our savings donated to the campaign $2,000 of our own money as seed money just to get started. And we've raised about $9,000 from the community. And that's kind of about where we are. It doesn't have to be financially prohibitive for you to run for office if you are willing to do the legwork. 
I learned to be an IT professional and designed and created my own website in about a month and a half. You can do that too. I hawk myself on emails all the time to anybody who will give me airspace to talk, anybody who will give me page space in a newspaper that wants to talk about me, particularly if they'll include a photo of me. Um, All of that matters. Anybody that you can that can share your information on social media and spread the word that way through likes, comments, shares, all of that matters. Advertising is expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, Be wise with your money. But if you're willing to take some of those resources and pound the pavement, knock on doors, canvas, stand out, make phone calls, that doesn't cost money. It's just time. You just have to make a commitment to do it. It doesn't have to be expensive to do this. I have a much smaller war chest than everybody else, and I'm doing fine. That's, I mean, that, that, that's amazing. I mean, that uh, you know, that race had eighty thousand dollars in it last time. Looks like the incumbents got about thirty-ish now, um, and you've raised like eleven grand or something. So, you know, if I if I do the math right, you know, you had twelve thousand voters in the last election. You're gonna have less than that. That means you're gonna put about a dollar per person mm-hmm. per voter in there and your incumbent's going to do about three dollars per person voting so interesting uh, so it's to our a matter listeners, of how you're prioritizing your resources that's well, exactly. all it is it's you're the exactly same right. thing with nursing you know you triage your patients who needs the most of you you know Absolutely. what part of this needs the most of me who what can i delegate out to somebody who's willing to volunteer for me right. and you know what can i push off to a little bit later when i do have some more time and resources yeah nurses that are good at telling others what to do though oh 100 we delegate like it's our job yeah, absolutely that, that makes my household a, a little difficult because i enjoy doing that and my wife who's a crna enjoys doing that so mm-hmm. as we mm-hmm. kind of wrap up here caitlin talk for just a minute about possibly being the first nurse as sheriff in the country. I mean, uh, tell me uh, any thoughts about that. I try not to put the, you know, the cart before the horse here. This is a day-to-day race for me. In the state of Massachusetts, the numbers are not on my side. I am very confident in myself, and I think I'm doing a really good job in my race in my county. Um, but generally speaking, ousting an incumbent in this county when I am of the same party is, I don't know, akin to moving mountains. <laughs> but I but I like a challenge. That's fine. I don't I don't mind. Here we are. Yeah. So I try not to think about it too much. There are moments where I'm alone with my husband and I'm like, you know, imagine if this happened. Cool, like, yeah. like that's kind of a thing. Like yeah. I I did a thing. I'm proud of myself enough for getting on a ballot. That's difficult to do in this state. It requires a lot of legwork. I got to get a lot of signatures, all of that. I have two young kids I'm trying to be a role model for. I like them to see that hard work can pay off and you can be proud of an effort and not a result. It's okay if I lose. That's all right. I've run a clean campaign. I'm happy with the work that I've done. I've accomplished a lot for never having done this before. And I think I've been able to give a voice to a lot of people who felt voiceless, the employees of the facility, nurses who don't take this type of thing on, the individuals in the care of the facility that I am actively advocating for in my community. And I'm proud of all of that. Win, lose, or draw. I'm proud of it. So I try not to think as big as 
you know, hey, you're going to be the first to ever do this ever, <laughs> ever, ever. Like, that's a lot. That's a lot to hold. If this all happens in September, maybe we can reconvene and see how I feel about it then. Yeah. But I'm just trying to take this race day to day. Yeah. And I think that's what you got to do. How to eat elephant one bite at a time. And uh, so, I mean, it's it's just very interesting to me. I mean, you know, just watching your, your demeanor, you know, you're natural political mm-hmm. person i mean you really are i mean you've got this my high you know school your theater stuff. teacher would be so proud of you you, you know your stuff too <laughs> i mean you know you, you can tell that you know you know your stuff so you didn't go into this lighthearted. i mean you're going into this to win and that's that's mm-hmm. obvious as well so well caitlin we we want to wish you all the best of luck and hopefully our listeners out there who you know if you're listening to this um you want to throw a few dollars caitlin's way i'm sure they can do that through your website we'll post that out there when when we put this out in the podcast world um, and hopefully we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. Hopefully you'll pull this off and then we'll have the first nurse sheriff in the country that was on our podcast and will probably come back, right? I'd love to. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. All right. We want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, how can they help us grow? Well, the best way to help us grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive. We all know there's enough negativity in this world. Amen to that. Tell all your friends, share us on social media, because we are in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on the way to number one. Of course. We're already number one in the CRNA community, right? Yes, we are. There you go. So thank you to all our listeners for that. Absolutely. Until next time. It's a wrap. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call them at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. 
Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit osaemr.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.